In the part of the world where I grew up, university football dominates the culture, and, and shockingly, it can even create disputes among families that divide member against family member. And so if I had a guest over to my house who liked a rival team strongly, strongly enough, um, I might hide my memorabilia that I've displayed to avoid the argument. Now when, when they come, though, they may remark how I'm not a real fan since I don't have anything displayed in my house to, to support my team. Now, the obvious response there is that just because they don't see my memorabilia doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I put it aside for them, but I genuinely have it. Perhaps I might even list it for them. I have t-shirts and towels and pennants and hats and all of this that show my support for my team. And in this instance, it's, it's relevant for them to know the reality of how I could use what I have, but I have chosen to put it aside for their benefit. Now, the point of, of that is that there's something similar at work in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're thinking about the first 14 verses. Paul had just argued, right, in, in chapter 8, that Christians set aside their liberties to benefit fellow Christians. He finished by saying that he would never eat meat if it offends another Christian's conscience. And, and now in chapter 9, he furthered that point by outlining other rights that he genuinely had but gave up in order to help others. Now, before we jump into the text itself, though, we should clarify how this whole chapter works within this letter. So commentators debate whether Paul meant this whole chapter to defend the principle of giving up rights by using himself as an example. He's He's given up his apostolic rights, and so they are free to follow suit. Or if he intended this chapter to refute those who had challenged his apostolic authority, the rights that he had. Now, if we think back about all of the studies we've done through this letter, both make a bit of sense, don't they? On the one hand, Paul had just made the case that they should be ready to sacrifice Christian liberties and, and felt his example supported that point. That makes sense. Now, on the other hand, this letter's early chapters showed how some people in Corinth had criticized Paul's lack of rhetorical flash in his preaching and, and it's plausible that they had used Paul's sacrifice of his apostolic rights and privileges to deny that he even had them. In a, in a culture like theirs that, that measured all of these traveling philosophers' prestige by how much money their message collected, some Corinthians may have misrepresented how Paul forewent their financial support 
In fact, as a lack of rights or a lack of credibility in his message. In that case, Paul will be defending his apostolic rights. Now, I think that as Charles Hodge said, Paul meant this chapter essentially to accomplish both at the same time. The whole chapter demonstrates the fact of Paul's apostolic rights, but also how he modeled personal sacrifice for the gospel's sake. So he defends his apostleship and he gives himself as a a model for how we can think about giving up liberties we have to benefit other Christians. Now, in light of that, this text calls us to consider for ourselves what Christians should be ready to do for one another. It is not as if the love that drives us not to insist upon our rights mean that we don't have those rights. We could assert our rights in one sense without it being in an absolute way a sin before God. But that assertion may hurt our fellow believers, making it a sin against them and thereby a sin against Christ, which means the best course of action at times is simply to forego some of our rights and privileges to make the road to growth in faith smoother for fellow believers. So the main point that we're going to consider is that sacrificing our privileges for other Christians does not undermine the reality that those privileges are truly ours. Sacrificing our privileges for other Christians does not undermine the reality that those privileges are truly ours. And we're going to think about this in three points. Experience, exegesis, and examination. First, experience. Right In verses 1 to 14, Paul set out to establish that he had apostolic rights, and, and he will later explain more extensively, why he gave them up. Mostly through lots of rhetorical questions, as you may have noticed, that expect the answer to be yes. He argued that he truly is an apostle, as their very existence as Christian shows, that he has the right to financial support in his apostolic work as any gospel minister, and as experience and the scripture show. And that his forfeiting his rights is simply for their benefit, even if they've turned that back against him. Now, if we, if we turn to look at the details of our passage, verses 1 to 3 outline simply that he is an apostle. Right? You see that? An apostle, like all Christians, had the basic Christian freedoms, liberties from a bound conscience. And and an apostle further had seen the risen Christ, which means, right, we should should take into account how that means that the apostolic office, which was accompanied with miraculous demonstration, has ceased. If one criteria for being an apostle was to have laid eyes on the resurrected Christ, then the office no longer continues, since, as far as I know, Christ has not physically left heaven 
to appear to someone since appearing to Paul on the Damascus Road. An apostle, lastly, laid the church's foundation uh, through gospel proclamation, and the Corinthians themselves confirmed Paul's apostolic calling as evidence that God had used his ministry as the means to issue his sovereign effectual call. Now, for sake of argument in these verses, Paul said that regardless of whether he was anybody else's apostle, he was theirs since God used his ministry, which they now criticized, to found their church and bring them to faith. So so this confirmation of his ministry was, was his defense against those who might challenge him. But he went on to establish his rights as an apostle. So he's established that he's an apostle. And now he's going to talk about his rights. And in verses 4 to 11, are, uh, these verses are essentially about Paul's right to financial support as a gospel minister. He has the right to eat and drink, right? Which, which doesn't refer back to the discussion of what meat is permissible, permissible, but to a minister's right to be able to obtain meals because of his gospel work. Now this shouldn't be limited to Paul's own person, but he also has the right to a family. And the church should support him in that had he wanted it. All the apostles, and by extension all who give their lives to word-focused ministry, were free not to work another job to provide for their earthly needs. Now, right, what's the evidence for that? And Paul says, essentially, that the world itself experience shows how the laborer is worth his wages. Soldiers don't have to fund their own provisions when they go to war. They don't have to fight at their own expense. We send them, and so we send them with provisions. Vine dressers eat their own fruit and and sell the rest to provide for themselves. Farmers, verse Now, this one's really interesting. Well, they're all interesting, but in a particular way. So farmers tend flocks and more literally translate, eat because of the milk. Which is interesting to think about why Paul would say they eat in reference to milk. But the point is that since their work provides the means to provide for their families, they're able to eat because of this milk that they get from their flocks. So in other words... Right? Everyday vocations that everybody has attest that everybody has the right to provision because of their work. And so experience tells us that people should be able to live from the work they do, which includes people in ministry. And that brings us to our second point, exegesis. So, Paul moves on to say in the next section of this passage that God's word also attests to the principle that legitimate work should be met with a legitimate wage. And Paul quoted Deuteronomy 25.4 to that effect. Now, I think this this bit is really neat. I'm 
excited <laughs> about this. Uh, I like it when there's kind of a knot to untangle in Scripture. God calls us to meditate on His Word, and this is a particularly interesting bit. So, Deuteronomy 25.4 says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And, and the citation has caused some debate because it's about how you shouldn't prevent an animal from eating some of the food in its path as it works for you. So, so as the ox is you know, going through the field and, and doing your work, it's supposed to be allowed to eat. You don't cover its mouth so it can eat as it works. But Paul quoted it as verse as about God's concern for humanity rather than oxen. So you kind of see, well, that's an interesting application. And the claim that's produced debate is that Paul interpreted this verse against its original literal meaning. But now, as as I hope you expect, <laughs> I'm going to argue that that view does not really understand how biblical law works. So let's consider a few things about Paul's use of this verse, right? So first, if you think about Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 to 3, we read that together. It's about distributing a rightly proportionate punishment to lawbreakers. So already at work in that Old Testament chapter, in the context, it's about the principle of reciprocal dues. A, A criminal deserves a punishment, but they've put a limit on it. God has put a limit on it so that it cannot be an overly harsh one. So verse 4, then that the animal, it then talks about how the animal deserves access to food as it works. So, th- so we see in these verses together, there's a fairness principle at work. Right? Okay? Now second thing to consider, the first thing was about the context in Deuteronomy 25 itself. Now second, People who criticize Paul for disregarding the original meaning miss how Mosaic law functioned in Israel. Now, in our day, lawyers, solicitors, people in the legal profession deal with something called precedent, which means that the verdict from an older case creates a a principle whereby a similar case can be assessed. Now, for example, right, if a brother steals a cake from his sister and gets convicted, some of you are smiling about that. Um, If a brother steals a cake from his sister and, and gets convicted for it, right, a judge later on will likely decide that the brother who stole a car from his sister should also be convicted. Makes sense, right? So there's a precedent of brother stealing from sister equals conviction, and this is a heightened case. Now, in our instance here, Israelites understood that the Mosaic law was not always limited to what the specific law said. Right? So there can be a broader principle at work, but and these laws were meant to create a constellation of principles by which 
they would make wise and, and lawful decisions about a given situation. So Puritans called this kind of approach to, to untangling biblical law casuistry and, and a casuistic reading, don't worry about the word, but just in case you're interested, a casuistic reading of this law would understand that, yes, this law still literally required that the livestock be permitted to eat uh, food as they, as they worked, but then if, if God commanded provision for animals by their work, how much more than that does this law entail that a human person should be able to obtain provision by their work. So it's an overly, note that word, overly literalist interpretive strategy to, to limit the verse in Deuteronomy just to oxen. That's not even the full scope of its original intent. Now lastly, and I get really excited about this. We, we've, we've discussed this once before, right? The, the Westminster Confession 19, paragraph 4, says, To them Israel also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now, further than the general equity thereof may require. Now, okay, what does that mean? This point means that Israel's various civil laws, which God gave to the nation, are no longer binding for any nation as a set of laws. But within those laws, there are principles of general equity. So underlying truths that are part of God's natural law, which he has hardwired into People made in his image. Now, interestingly, our confession includes 1 Corinthians 9, verses 8 to 10, as a proof text. And the point to draw that together is that the Westminster divines saw, as more importantly, Paul saw, that the Mosaic law communicated a truth that God had built a law principle in nature about the fairness in giving a worker, human or animal, his wages. That's part of the way God made the world. A worker deserves their wages. And this law given to the nation of Israel expresses that abiding truth. Even if the specific point about grain and oxen is not still abiding. Now, Paul said that this principle applies all the more to those who work in ministry because, as he indicated in verse 11, ministers give them spiritual things and need only earthly things in return. So, there is a sense here of disproportion between the work, and the reward. But in this case, it it runs in favor of those who receive the ministry. Receive the ministry. So as D.A. Carson wrote, the church does not pay its ministers. Rather, it provides them with resources so that they are able to serve freely. 
So exegesis of Holy Scripture confirms that God built the world with a principle that a worker deserves his wages. And that brings us to our final point, examination. That sounded ominous, and I mean it too. So the the previous two points have looked at how Paul defended that he truly possessed the right to financial support that belongs to all the apostles. It, it was exactly this right, however, that he and Barnabas had given up, verse 12, so that there would be no obstacle for the gospel among the Corinthians. And verses 13 and 14 say, The Corinthians knew that this right belonged to everyone who worked in the temples. The, the priests and the people who worked in the altar would eat because of the, the sacrifices that people brought. And, and it, that principle applied in Jewish or pagan temples. It was the same in both instances. So the point remains either way. Which means, as Jesus commanded in Matthew 10, verse 10, that gospel ministers should be able to make their living from their gospel work. Now, it remains for us to consider then why Paul would sacrifice that right and what that calls us to do. And Paul said he refused their financial support to prevent any hindrance of the gospel. As we thought about earlier on in this letter, Corinth was a a patron society in which the wealthy took financial responsibility for others who were without means to sustain themselves, and and that, of course, included these traveling philosophers. Those who supported these teachers and philosophers had, had the first go at new material or even influence over the teacher. And obviously, right, Paul would have none of that for the gospel. The gospel was equally and is equally for everyone, and and no one could or can buy it. Further, in a culture where it would have been obvious who the wealthy patrons were, unlike essentially our anonymous giving in churches today, Paul wouldn't have wanted any hint that someone had him in their pocket, so to speak. Now, there's an obvious application that I think I need to flag about financial support for the church's ministry, as Reverend Pearson has already mentioned. I mean, this this passage is clear that we need to give in order to facilitate the church doing its gospel work. And we need to give so that those who serve in gospel ministry should live from their work in that. And I, I hope that everyone would consider that point. Mainly, I, I think that we need to think about how we view the church, right? Do, do we think of the church primarily as a place to find provision if you need something to, to give to you, given to you, Or do you see the church as already providing you with spiritual sustenance continually and so worthy of your material support? It's always worth in a place like London where 
resources are always strained, to, to consider how much we value, how much our pastor, as, as he works us through the book of Numbers and points us to Christ, how much we value the things that he sows to us so that we can fully support him and his family. I understand that we all have the right to keep our wages, but we should examine right, how we can care for the one who works the spiritual fields in our congregation. I want to point us beyond that, though. That was the the obvious application. And I don't want to camp on the money issue. I actually want to pry deeper into this. Paul's sacrifice for the gospel's flourishing asks us to examine how ready we are to give up our privileges. What... What might that mean for us when we feel that we have maybe been wronged in one of our relationships? Everyone has a relationship in which it's easy to end up in conflict. I know you do. Perhaps that's your relationship with your parents or with a coworker, or with a fellow student or with your children or with a sibling or with your spouse, you will, right, in, in these instances when things explode, you will feel, feel fully in your rights to get mad at them, right? You will feel like your sibling got doing less than you or like your coworker got the praise that you should have received. Or your spouse should just shut their mouth and and do it your way because honestly, right, we all know they're the lucky one to have you. Scripture says maybe you are within your rights, but would it be better for the gospel's thriving if you just let it go? What if you did the extra work at work gladly? What if you did the extra chores? What if you praised your coworker? What what if you shut your mouth and forgave your spouse instead of you calling them to shut their mouth? What if you just shut yours and, and forgave your spouse and menial things without even saying a word about it? I really think we should examine how giving up our rights and privileges may help our most direct relationships for the gospel's sake, whether that be in evangelism or simply for the sake of our sanctification. I think the problem that I most have in this, right, is I drift to think, but I matter. Right, I'm in, give up my rights, I'm important. What do you mean, me give up my rights? We deceive ourselves when we think that way. God could kill me before I leave this pulpit and the world wouldn't miss a beat and it would change the lives of very few people. Why would I exhaust myself 
insisting on my rights that push people apart. Right, many of you are likely thinking, yeah, but that that approach isn't going to return many benefits to me. That that means I'm always going to be taking it on the chin. Yeah? Like Paul? Paul thought being an apostle meant extending himself the best that he could so that others would know Jesus Christ? Paul wasn't interested in the dividends that his sacrifice paid, but in how his sacrifice helped others. And right, don't we know that he took that mindset from Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, not insisting on all the rights he had as God's son, not grasping at equality with God, but becoming a servant and obeying, obeying even unto death on a cross so that he might buy a people to have for himself, redeeming us by his blood and offering us eternal life if we would believe in him. He gave everything that he might own you. And he asked merely that you would trust in him and as his savior, as your savior. That is the gospel. That someone gave up everything for us. Disregarded every right that he had. So that he might make you his family. It's worth considering what that calls us to do, but it's even more so considering how that assures us of the deep, deep love of God for each of us who cling to Jesus Christ. It is time, for the first time, for the thousandth time, to run to Jesus, clinging to him for that salvation, knowing that he was willing to endure all things that he might be your Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we live in a society that loves to speak of rights, and we have a Savior who for the joy set before him gave up all his rights. And so we ask, we do ask, that you would help us to be more like the Apostle Paul, who wrote this passage, and more importantly, to be like Jesus, who died to have us for him, his people. We do ask that you would help us to consider these things well. What it might be worth giving up for the thriving of the gospel. But we also ask that you would help us to consider well that that is not a new law, but it's simply the example set by Christ who freely gives us grace. Everything we give up is not meant to earn your favor but is meant to reflect gratitude for the favor you have given us. Help us to throw ourselves in the merciful arms of Christ. And we ask these things in his name, for his sake.
Amen.